Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, all of you, for coming. I'm very pleased to be here, and I'm very impressed, uh, given the alternative entertainment available later this evening, <laughs> that so many of you have chosen to hear about Kim Jong-il before you go listen to Joe Biden and Sarah Palin. Uh, I, I, I wanted to, uh, uh, to uh, talk about both uh, my book and uh, some of the issues, the bigger issues affecting the current situation with North Korea. Uh, but I wanted to begin uh, by telling you a story about a lunch date that I had uh, with the father of the man on the cover of my book, North Korea's current leader, Kim Jong-il. Uh, let's see if that works. Doesn't work. Hmm. You, I'm not sure what is something blocking it. This is what's called a technical glitch. All right, to go in the other direction. These these things happen during the covering the tsunami for CNN. Again, you're going in the, you're going in the wrong direction. Coming, coming the tsunami for CNN, I, start, I was doing a live shot and they, I was so tired I'd forgotten to clip my microphone on and so the audio was really, all right, there you go, there you go. Now, will this go the other direction? Yeah, I'll just sit here. Right, you'll, uh, oh, there we go. All right, we're great. All right. Anyway, my, this, so, so, so they were screaming in my ear, we can't hear you, we can't hear you. And uh, the sound man realized and so I said, well, we're so in such a, a devastated situation. We have all these very big technical obstacles to broadcasting and meanwhile he was sort of clipping the microphone on just below the camera because I'd been too exhausted to remember to put it on. But anyway, I wanted to start by telling you about lunch that I had with Kim Il-sung in uh, April of 1994. It was the day after his 82nd birthday and I was in Pyongyang with a CNN crew uh, covering a small group of so-called VIPs that had been organized by the Moonies to go to North Korea because Reverend Sun Myung Moon, had, uh, who was from the northern part of Korea, had met Kim Il-sung the previous year. Uh, anyway, this group was invited to have lunch with him and have a meeting with him, and we tagged along. Uh, and so we spent 90 minutes talking with Kim at the Kung Susang Palace, which was a massive marbled monstrosity with 100-foot high ceilings, everything aligned in perfect symmetry, not a speck of dust or dirt in sight anywhere. We ate lunch in a room with a gorgeous view of the mountains outside. Before we began, the great leader, as the North Koreans call him, uh, stood up to give a toast. As he did so, the rays of the sun seemed to pour through the window, bathing him in this kind of rosy glow. And he gave his toast, and he sat down, and the glow appeared to fade. We went on with the lunch. Kim told us he wanted a negotiated settlement to the crisis then brewing with the United States over the North's nuclear program. Uh, that was the first nuclear crisis in the mid-'90s. My book is about the second one. Anyway, uh, he told us a number of other interesting stories, including how he liked to go bear hunting, but he was quite old and he couldn't get around the way he used to, and so his soldiers went out periodically and would catch a bear and stick a, the bear in the tree and then give him a gun and he could go shoot the bear out of the tree and indulge his passion for hunting. Anyway, as we left, my cameraman, who notices such things, turned to me in amazement and he said, did you notice the lights? And I said, no, what are you talking about? And apparently, the cameraman had been watching. When Kim stood up, tiny little lights that had been inserted at the point where the wall and the ceiling intersect, somebody outside had cranked them up. And it was this artificial device, not the glow from the, the, not the rays of the sun, that had created this rosy glow around Kim Il-sung. And when he sat down, the guy evidently cranked the lights down. And I, I, I like to tell this story because I think it underscores, it's such a good symbol for the challenge of trying to deal with North Korea because it underscores the fact that uh, all too often you can never be sure what's real there and what's not. 
I have to say, however, in fairness, that given the amount of spin I encountered among the rival factions in the Bush administration, I occasionally had a similar sensation on my many visits to Washington doing the research for this book. Anyway, with that caveat, let me talk a bit about the book and where things stand with North Korea today. Now, let's see if this works. No? You're going you're gonna to have to sit there and go forward. All right. There, very good, okay. Meltdown is a work of investigative reporting. I spent nearly two years and interviewed over 200 people, some of them not once, but many times in the hope of piecing together the story of the North Korean nuclear crisis. The interviews ranged from Colin Powell to John Bolton to the former president of South Korea and dozens and dozens of others on all sides of the issue. I came into the project with no preconceived notions, no axe to grind with a, a lot of personal interest since I'd made 14 trips to North Korea and had covered both Koreas extensively for many years as a foreign correspondent. And the goal was to simply understand what happened and to get the story right because it is really an amazing story. I don't know why this isn't working now. Anyway, the story is how North Korea successfully staged its nuclear breakout, how a U.S. administration whose top priority was to prevent so-called rogue states from acquiring weapons of mass destruction was not able to stop Kim Jong-il's regime from doing just that, why and how the Bush administration abruptly reversed course from confrontation to negotiation, and what this tells us both about the making of foreign policy in the Bush administration and also about how the North Korean leadership and political system operates. I want to talk about some of the key headlines from the book because I think they'll help shed some light both on the general environment in which U.S. policy towards North Korea has been made and also on what's happening today. Meltdown documents in more detail than has previously been available how fierce bureaucratic infighting left the Bush administration with a policy towards North Korea that I think one can legitimately describe as incoherent, dysfunctional, and often self-defeating. These battles between hardliners like Vice President Cheney, John Bolton, and others who opposed real negotiations with North Korea and those who favored a diplomatic approach like Colin Powell, Assistant Secretary of State Christopher Hill, who's in Pyongyang as we speak, and Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, shape almost every development in meltdown. It produced episodes that would be comical if the stakes weren't so high. Can we have the... Oop. For example... Vice President Cheney personally intervening with President Bush to overturn Colin Powell's instructions to his negotiator at the six-party talks in Beijing in ways that the North Koreans were certain to reject, a development that could have jeopardized the entire six-party process. The next one. Powell and his deputy Richard Armitage, seen here with President Bush, uh, keeping to themselves and not sharing with other senior officials news delivered to State Department officials by North Korean diplomats that Pyongyang had begun reprocessing plutonium. Next one. And hardliners disparagingly calling the State Department's Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs EAPsers and mocking Christopher Hill here as Kim Jong-Hill. So this was the climate in which the Bush administration tried to have a policy on North Korea, and it provides the context for the book's next headline. Meltdown details just how the stunning turnaround in Bush administration policy towards North Korea in the past couple of years took place. It shows how Assistant Secretary of State Hill seized control of the policy process. First, next one. First, by violating instructions from his boss, Secretary of State Rice, and holding unauthorized bilateral meetings with the North Koreans. And then, after winning Rice over to his side, by freezing out uh, hardline opponents of engagement. As Hill negotiated with the North Koreans, he and Rice simply kept their bureaucratic rivals in the dark, not informing them in advance of key meetings and presenting agreements only after they'd been reached and Rice had convinced President Bush to sign off on them. The normal interagency process, preparing position papers, drafting talking points, circulating them through the bureaucracy, didn't happen. As one person that I interviewed described it, the policy process became Hill calls Rice and Rice calls Bush. Given the intense opposition among the hardliners to any deal with North Korea, this was probably the only way Hill could have achieved the diplomatic breakthroughs that he did but it's left him politically isolated and without a lot of friends and allies in Washington as the negotiating process reaches a critical stage, as has now happened. Meltdown also reveals that the nuclear crisis which erupted in 2002 and which led 
directly to North Korea testing a bomb and becoming the world's eighth declared nuclear power might have been avoidable and was to a considerable, considerable degree provoked by administration hardliners who spun intelligence about a procurement effort for a uranium enrichment program into claims of a full-fledged capability to make uranium-based nuclear bombs that did not then and does not now exist. The conventionally accepted narrative is that the U.S. uncovered a clandestine North Korean uranium enrichment program that Assistant Secretary of State Jim Kelly confronted the North Koreans about it in October 2002, and they admitted the charge. This led to the U.S. decision to cut off supplies of oil promised to North Korea in late 2002, triggering Pyongyang's decision to restart the Yongbyon reactor frozen under the 1994 deal called the Agreed Framework that had been negotiated by the Clinton administration, and then led Pyongyang to stage its subsequent nuclear breakout culminating in the 2006 nuclear test. Meltdown shows that in the spring and summer of 2002, U.S. intelligence did discover a North Korean effort to acquire components that could be used for uranium enrichment. But the intelligence found only a procurement effort. There was no credible intelligence then, and there has not been any credible intelligence since, to show that North Korea had or has an actual uranium enrichment facility that would enable it to make a uranium bomb. This is a critical distinction. Given the enormous technical challenges involved in assembling a working system of centrifuges that could enrich uranium in sufficient quantities to produce nuclear weapons, the CIA in late 2002 believed it would be mid-decade at the earliest and possibly up to 10 more years before any such plant would be fully operational. The longer time frame meant that the issue, while serious, was not an immediate threat and it might have been possible to negotiate a resolution to the matter without sparking a new crisis on the Korean Peninsula had the Bush administration been willing at the time to negotiate. However, administration hardliners who were intent on killing the agreed framework, which they viewed as appeasement by the wimpish Clinton administration, seized on the issue to force a confrontation. After Vice President Cheney intervened directly with President Bush, the original talking points for Assistant Secretary of State Kelly were overruled and he was given instructions for his October 2002 trip not to negotiate. Instead, his instructions dictated that he simply tell the North Koreans they had to abandon their uranium program before any progress on any other issue was possible. Kelly was also ordered not to observe normal diplomatic courtesies, such as holding a reciprocal banquet for his North Korean hosts, or even making a toast at a meal they hosted for him on the day of his arrival. Although at the time, Kelly and the other members of his delegation came away convinced that North Korea's first vice foreign minister, Kang Suk-ju, had admitted the uranium allegation, interviews with many members of the group, folks in this picture, plus interviews with others who later saw the transcript of the meeting, raised serious doubts about whether the North Koreans in fact did so. The actual language the North Korean official used was apparently much more ambiguous, talking about North Korea's right to have such weapons, but not saying explicitly that it had them. I should point out that the Bush administration continues to refuse to declassify the transcript of that meeting, despite re repeated requests made under the Freedom of Information Act. In the book, I also note that the North, at the same meeting, offered to negotiate a solution to the controversy, an offer that Assistant Secretary Kelly was under instructions to reject. A secret message from Kim Jong-il to President Bush conveyed through American intermediaries the following month, also appealing for talks, was ignored by Washington. Finally, Meltdown highlights some key aspects of North Korean behavior. There's a conventional view that Kim Jong-il is crazy and irrational, someone who is impossible to deal with. The reality, based on interviews with a number of people who had met and negotiated with Kim over the years, including here, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. And I should point out, by the way, the guy to her left in between them uh, is uh, Kim Jong-il's interpreter. And on several of my previous visits, he'd been our main guide as well, but I had no idea he was that close to the dear leader until he showed up in the, the, this meeting here. Um, otherwise, I would have pumped him for more information on my earlier trips. <laughs> anyway, apart from Madeleine Albright, there was also uh, 
former South Korean President Kim Dae-jung, and a host of others. And the picture they paint is very different. They invariably describe Kim Jong-il as smart, shrewd, well-briefed, very much in charge. And throughout the crisis, he had a clear strategic goal, which is survival. Let me share one anecdote that I think is very revealing about the North Korean mindset. On one of my visits, I was taken to the mausoleum housing the embalmed remains of the great leader Kim Il-sung. The North Koreans like the Russians with Lenin and the Chinese with Mao and the North Vietnamese with Ho Chi Minh embalmed their leader and put him in this big mausoleum for people to go pay their respects. Anyway, when you visit, you glide along this uh, kilometer-long moving walkway until you reach a series of vast marble corridors at the end of which there's a giant white marble statue of uh, Kim Il-sung illuminated from behind with pink lights to give this rosy glow effect which they are so enamored of. Then you go up the stairs into a cavernous room where his remains are on display in a big glass case. After uh, people pay their respects uh, they go downstairs to a set of adjoining rooms. Here the North Koreans have somehow managed to install Kim Il-sung's favorite train carriage because like his son Kim Jong-il, Kim Il-sung didn't like to fly and a bulletproof Mercedes given to Kim Il-sung by his son. And then you get to the final stop and the point of this tale. It's an exhibition containing some of the 140,000 gifts the great leader had received from foreign dignitaries in his lifetime. Among the items on display were a big belt of merit order from the Polish People's Republic, the Order of Freedom First Class from the People's Socialist Republic of Albania, a medal for the Lenin Centenary from the Soviet Union, and the Karl Marx Order from East Germany. What's striking is how many of these gifts came from states that no longer existed and from communist leaders, Romania's Nicolae Ceausescu, East Germany's Eric Honecker, Albania's Enver Hoxha, who had been toppled and tossed, as the communists like to say, onto the dustbin of history. They were all Kim Il-sung's contemporaries. He outlived all of them, and his system and his son, for all its weirdness, has outlasted theirs. But now, in the post-Cold War world, deprived of its longtime alliances with the Soviet Union and China, who have embraced market economics, regime survival, keeping the system intact in a hostile world, has become the all-consuming priority of the North Korean leadership. Understanding this issue from Pyongyang's point of view, I believe, is the key to making sense of North Korea today. In North Korean eyes, the key to survival at a time when almost all the world's other communist states have collapsed is the United States. Pyongyang believes that only the U.S., its longtime enemy, now the world's only superpower, can provide the security guarantees to ensure that North Korea doesn't follow its former communist comrades into oblivion. In the same vein, the North Koreans believe the U.S. holds the key to the international community to recognition, trade, and aid that might pull the country out of its economic decline and ensure its long-term viability. And that, in my view, is at the heart of North Korea's international strategy, and you can see it very clearly on the nuclear issue. Many have described North Korea's move to develop a nuclear capability as just the latest step by a dangerous, wacky, and irrational regime. But a much more plausible explanation, in my view, is that North Korea sees nukes as the only way to ensure their security against a hostile U.S., and that they might, for the right price, real security guarantees from Washington, the lifting of sanctions, economic aid, eventual recognition, be coaxed into abandoning them. And interestingly, when treated with respect in a genuine negotiating process of give and take, which incidentally they repeatedly appealed for from the moment George W. Bush took office, the record shows that the North Koreans have in fact been open to resolving their differences with the U.S. through negotiations. And even at moments of extreme tension, as I document in Meltdown, the North Koreans have consistently signaled their desire for talks. For example, this North Korean foreign ministry statement, which was largely ignored by the media at the time, I think is very revealing. It's their official announcement uh, that they had staged a nuclear test in October 2006. And in that statement, Pyongyang also declared that it still remains unchanged in its will to denuclearize the peninsula through dialogue and negotiation. The DPRK, which is Democratic People's Republic of Korea, is ready for both dialogue and confrontation. Moreover, despite their reputation as difficult negotiators, for example, it only took two months at the six-party talks 
uh, in the summer and early fall of 2005 to agree on what became known as the September 19th Declaration, laying out a set of principles for resolving the crisis. This is Christopher Hill shaking hands with his North Korean counterpart, Kim Gae-gwan, as South Korea's envoy, envoy looks on. You'll note that Kim Gae-gwan, the, the guy on this side, has got his little button with a, it's a picture of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il's face, and this is a button that all North Korean citizens uh, wear, uh, and you get into all sorts of political trouble if you're caught without one. Anyway, it, uh, beyond this deal in 2005, it took only about the same amount of time to reach a deal in the middle of February of 2007, known as the February 13th Agreement, which spelled out a detailed roadmap for denuclearization and paved the way for the shutdown of the Yongbyon reactor. And if you look back in history, in 1994, it only took four months from when Jimmy Carter visited North Korea to broker a breakthrough in the crisis to the signing of this agreed framework deal under which the North Koreans froze their nuclear facilities and produced no more weapons grade plutonium until they restarted uh, the operation in 2003. Um, so the notion that it's impossible to make any headway with the North Koreans is wrong. Critics argue however, that the North Koreans are never sincere, they don't keep any agreements that they've signed, and I would certainly say that skepticism is always in order. But because of the constant flip-flopping and the frequent mixed signals coming from Washington, the situation has never reached a point where the North's intention could really be truly tested. One thing, however, I think is abundantly clear. The experience of the last seven years shows that pressure and coercion don't work with North Korea. Instead, the predictable North Korean response when pushed has been to push back even harder, to make clear it won't knuckle under whatever the cost. So all in all, uh, the story recounted in Meltdown is a pretty dramatic tale. And I found in my research there's also a fascinating kind of spy underworld element to it, from the story of the Banco Delta Asia, the shady bank in the former Portuguese colony of Macau, where the North Koreans ran a money laundering and counterfeiting operation, to the murder of a North Korean agent in Pakistan just days after Pakistan's own nuclear test, and the role of the rogue Pakistani nuclear scientist A.Q. Khan, to revelations from a South Korean spy inside North Korea. But to get all the juicy details on these stories, you'll have to buy the book. Anyway. That brings me to what's happening today. I mentioned this February 13, 2007 deal. Since then, and following another more detailed agreement reached in October of last year, there have been some important steps forward. In return for shipments of heavy fuel oil and other aid and the prospect of a political fall with the U.S., the North Koreans shut down the Yongbyon reactor, admitted U.S. and international inspectors, including Christopher Hill, seen here wearing his protective clothing as he toured the Yongbyon facility, and the North Koreans took a number of steps to disable Yongbyon. Uh, this development was symbolized by the televised destruction of the cooling tower, the Yongbyon reactor, uh, which was blown up in late June. The North also gave the U.S. thousands of pages of documentation, including the reactor's operating records. And at the end of June, it provided a 60-page declaration of its nuclear capabilities. The declaration, however, did not address a couple of important issues the scale or extent of whatever North Korean effort had been made uh, to acquire a uranium enrichment capability or its possible nuclear cooperation with Syria, even though the terms of that 2007 deal called for Pyongyang to provide a, quote, complete and correct declaration. Under the deal, in return for disabling Yongbyon and giving this declaration, the U.S. was supposed to lift sanctions under the Trading with the Enemy Act and begin the process of removing Pyongyang from its list of state sponsors of terrorism. Despite its shortcomings, the U.S. and the other participants in the six-party talks accepted the North Korean declaration, and almost immediately afterward, in late June, President Bush announced plans to take the North Koreans off the terrorism list. Now, however, barely three months later, North Korea has announced that it's restarting operations at Yongbyon, and we're facing a potentially serious new crisis. So what's going on? The conventional narrative is that this is yet another example of North Korea reneging on its commitments. The reality, however, is rather different. While the Bush administration and the other members of the six-party talks accepted the North Korean declaration, 
There was pushback in Washington from critics, most notably in Vice President Cheney's office, from uh, people like John, former UN Ambassador John Bolton, who's a leading hardline voice, and others who claimed that the failure of the declaration to address the uranium and Syrian issues showed it wasn't credible. They accused Christopher Hill of giving away too much to the North Koreans and insisted that the U.S. demand that Pyongyang accept a detailed protocol to verify their declaration before this delisting, being taken off the terrorism list, would actually be implemented. President Bush and Secretary of State Rice agreed with them and announced uh, in August that despite the President's decision to take the North off the list, that step would not actually be taken until Pyongyang agreed to the details of a verification regime. The North Koreans were furious in an official statement in late August. The North pointed to the fact that in the agreement on the declaration there was no language explicitly making acceptance of a verification protocol a condition for being taken off the terrorism list. And senior administration officials have acknowledged to me privately that technically the North Koreans are right when they say that by refusing to delist, it's the U.S. that's reneging on its commitment. My understanding from those who've spoken directly with senior North Korean officials is that Pyongyang has not rejected the idea of a deal on verification altogether. It's the sequencing that's been the issue. The North says that verification is supposed to be dealt with in what's called phase three, which is a new set of negotiations that would begin once it had been it's been removed from the terrorism list. So what the Bush administration argued was a necessary step, both to ensure the truth of what the North told them in the declaration and to blunt the criticism from hardliners in Washington, is seen in Pyongyang as the U.S. moving the goalposts and trying to squeeze additional concessions by threatening not to go ahead with delisting. Before I talk about where this leaves things, let me uh, go over the backstory about what happened with uranium in Syria and verification to lead us to this potentially dangerous point. When the U.S. pushed the North Koreans to come clean on what they were doing with uranium earlier in the year, they balked. This created a dilemma for the U.S. negotiator Christopher Hill. If he'd insisted on a full accounting of uranium, the process might have collapsed without the North Koreans providing any information on its plutonium program, which was the most immediate threat to U.S. security. After all, the North had already manufactured enough weapons-grade plutonium to make anywhere from six to eight or ten bombs and had staged a nuclear test. And Hill argued that the most pressing issue was to cap all production activity at Yongbyon and roll that back and these other issues, while important, could be dealt with later, especially because on the issue of uranium, as I mentioned earlier, the U.S. had no credible intelligence that the North ever had a production-level capability to enrich uranium. All the U.S. was confident that its intelligence proved that the North had done was to be engaged in a procurement effort. And it seems clear that whatever the North Koreans may have procured, they're likely years away from ever being able to make a uranium bomb if they had that capability at, uh, at all. On the issue of Syria, there was a similar dilemma. The Syria question came to public attention when Israel destroyed a site in the Syrian desert in September 2007, where Damascus was allegedly building a nuclear reactor with North Korean help. This is a satellite picture of that site taken in August of 2007. Clearly, if North Korea was helping Syria build a nuclear reactor modeled on Yongbyon, that's very worrying. But in any event, as you can see from this photo, in September of 2007, the Israelis kind of took that building and turned it into a parking lot. And in any case, there is no evidence that the North made any fissile material available to, to Syria. Whatever aid uh, cooperation was going on was mainly in the, in the production of an actual reactor building. So that the site and the immediate threat that it posed no longer existed. Thus, as with the uranium issue, Christopher Hill again faced a choice. Did you ri do you risk jeopardizing making m important progress on the most pressing issue, which is plutonium, by demanding a North Korean confession about a project the Israelis had destroyed, or do you find some kind of compromise or fudge to defer confrontation, push the for answers at a later stage of the negotiations. So in both cases, that's what Hill did. He chose to avoid a confrontation, hoping to keep the effort to disable the Yongbyon's reactor's uh, capability to manufacture weapons-grade plutonium moving forward. 
The deal he'll reach with the North Koreans was that inside documents to the main declaration, the North would, quote, acknowledge what it had been told by Washington about uranium in Syria. The clear understanding was that the U.S. would continue to press for more details going forward, but Hill argued it was a mistake to allow these two less immediate concerns to block movement towards getting North Korea out of the plutonium business now. Once Pyongyang provided the declaration, it was supposed to be taken off the terrorism list. The disabling of Yongbyon would then be completed, assuring that the North would not be able to resume making plutonium for at least a year and denying it the leverage that would come from threatening to do so. Talks would then address plans for verification as a first step to complete the dismantling of all the North's nuclear programs. But this deal, which President Bush and Secretary Rice went along with early in, earlier in the summer, meant that the declaration the North provided was not, as called for in the agreement, quote, complete and correct. And in Washington, as I mentioned, hardliners said it wasn't credible and accused Hill of giving away too much. And the pushback became so intense that Bush and Rice buckled and made the demand for acceptance of a verification protocol, a precondition for following through with delisting. So predictably, when pressed, the North Koreans went back to their tried and true playbook and pushed back by taking steps to restart their reactor. And now we have, to further complicate this already incredibly complex situation, the rumors about Kim Jong-il's health. The truth is that no one outside the North Korean inner circle really knows what's happening, although it seems pretty clear that at some point in mid-August he had what I guess the term is a medical event, most widely thought to be uh, a stroke um, and is in some fashion incapacitated, although we don't know quite how serious it is uh, or uh, whether he's recovering or deteriorating. There's simply no credible information on that. But whatever his health is at the moment, this development's had a profound consequence because it has meant the issue of the succession in North Korea is now in play. And here, too, there's very little clarity about what might happen. By the time his own father was 66, Kim Jong-il had been the designated successor for a half dozen years. But from all the available evidence, none of Kim Jong-il's three sons from two different women have been put forward as his heirs. The sons all have, to one degree or another, some political problems. The oldest one, Kim Jong-nam, was, is most well known for having been detained by Japanese immigration officials at Tokyo Airport while traveling on a fake Dominican Republic passport claiming he was coming to visit Tokyo Disneyland. The two younger sons, even less is known about them, although they are believed to have been sent to private boarding schools in Switzerland, and one was reportedly spotted at an Eric Clapton concert. But beyond that, we know very little. So there is no clear-cut succession mechanism in place. Some people have predicted that North Korea will collapse if Kim Jong-il leaves the scene. I'm actually not so sure. Uh, the North Korean system is pretty resilient to have withstood all the stresses that it's faced in the last couple of decades. And my guess is that if Kim dies, the military and senior leaders in the ruling party uh, would uh, take charge and rule in his name and perhaps put forward one of the younger sons as a kind of uh, official heir while they call the shots behind the scene. I don't think we'd see an early or catastrophic collapse of the North Korean system, but it may, might well be that the North Koreans would become even more difficult to deal with, even less willing to make concessions on the nuclear issue. Still, given all the stresses inside the country, uh, it's just impossible to predict the future course of events. Lost in all these complicated details often is the big picture. As I've noted, for years what North Korea has wanted is an end to its conflict with the U.S. in order to ensure the survival of its current leadership and system. Until Pyongyang is convinced that's going to happen, from a North Korean perspective, holding on to its bombs has a certain logic. Given the lack of trust between Washington and Pyongyang and the way, as I've mentioned here in Chronicle in much greater and more colorful detail and meltdown, it became much worse since George W. Bush took office, it would be unrealistic to expect the North Koreans to take the dramatic step of giving up what they see as the key to their survival, a nuclear capability, without a correspondingly dramatic series of gestures from the United States. There are more than a few analysts who doubt that the North will ever willingly abandon its nukes, and that may well turn out to be the case. If Kim Jong-il is incapacitated or if he dies, the odds of the regime taking such a step 
are even smaller, and no way will they consider taking such a step in the near future. Maybe if a U.S. president visits Pyongyang, if Air Force One arrives and the president goes to preside over the opening of an American embassy and the lifting of all sanctions, there might be a possibility, but probably not before, and they're going to be uh, long, difficult negotiations required many confidence-building measures, even under the best of circumstances. And unfortunately, we don't really have the best of circumstances. Sadly, with a nuclear arsenal developed and expanded in large part to what he saw as the Bush administration's efforts to do him in, Kim Jong-il has much more to give up now. North Korea, unfortunately, is in a position to demand a much higher price from the United States for any future moves toward denuclearization than would have been the case had the Bush administration chosen the path of negotiations in the first place. And if the administration sticks to its guns on delisting, if Chris Hill is not able to come back from Pyongyang with a comp compromise that resolves the issue, the Yongbyon reactor will likely be up and running just after our new president takes office. It could, in fact, become the first big international crisis for President McCain or President Obama. And it will be a crisis where there are few good options, with the likeliest outcome that North Korea, despite its weaknesses, despite the fact that it's facing a deeply uncertain leadership transition, will get away with becoming and remaining the world's eighth declared nuclear power. So I'll stop there, and we'll open it up for discussion. Thanks very much. So is there any uh, questions for Mike? We open it up at this point in time for uh, some questions and answers. And do we have the, the circulating microphone? Oh, good. So uh, just there, there you go, Barb. Thank you very much. Um, I wanted to, you didn't talk at all about, and I know you couldn't talk about everything, but uh, the, the role of the U.S. Treasury and um, counterfeiting and was I guess two specific questions on there. One is, was there really a lack of coordination between Treasury and State when on going forward right. there? And um, how much impact did that really have ultimately when we opened up and let them have some of the money? Okay. Well, I did have a or picture. Maybe I, you I, could I, tell I the rest of the yeah, group the background. Yeah. I, I did have a picture of the Banco Delta Asia. It's a very, it's a very interesting and complicated story, but... Uh, I can't cover everything or you would either fall asleep or walk out or it would just be too long of me droning on. But it is the, 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 the targeting of North Korea's illicit financial activities was a very important factor um, and, and, and I think was, was one of the major reasons why the North Koreans staged a nuclear test. There, there is no question over many years that the North Koreans have a track record of their diplomats and officials being involved in counterfeiting, in money laundering, uh, in drug smuggling. There have been North Korean diplomats who've been stopped and they've discovered dope in diplomatic pouches. The North Koreans have uh, exported methamphetamines to Japanese gangsters. Uh, the, the, the joke or the, the phrase that some people uh, use is called the soprano state. And there, there is, in fact, some truth to that. And that led in uh, 2004, in particular, in 2005, to what was known as the Illicit Activities Initiative. And I have a whole chapter in my book about it because it's the most kind of cloak and dagger. It was an attempt um, to bring together all the different agencies of the U.S. government to try and target these illicit activities. And the original idea behind it was that if they did so and you were involved in a negotiation with the North Koreans, if you could somehow squeeze them and hurt them financially, it might have a uh, positive effect on the North's negotiating posture. It was not intended to be made public. But what happened was that uh, it sort of became transformed over time into something different. It was seen by people uh, of the more hardline persuasion who, a as a possible vehicle to promote uh, regime change or collapse in North Korea. Uh, the idea was that if you targeted them and cut them off from international trade and commerce, uh, that uh, the pressure would become so great, particularly on the elite, that it would turn people against Kim Jong-il. And at the, s the center of this, the, the focus uh, was, was placed on this bank in Macau called the Banco Delta Asia, where the North, the North, North Koreans had used Macau for many years as a kind of base of operations. They had numerous trading companies there. The North Korean airline 
flew in there in the 80s when they were still involved with terrorism. They used Macau as a place to train agents uh, in how to sort of look comfortable and operate in a Western setting, although after 1987 there's no evidence they were involved in terrorism. But anyway, the, the idea became to target this Macau bank. The, the problem was that as I investigated, while there's no question in general the North Koreans did this dirty stuff, the Treasury Department didn't in fact have evidence beyond the fact that 52 companies with North, either North Korean companies, North Korean individuals, or companies that did business in North Korea had accounts there. Um, they didn't in fact have evidence of any misdeeds. But in September of 2005, the Banco Delta Asia was labeled a, a money laundering concern. There was a big fight in the government beforehand with people involved in trying to jumpstart the diplomatic process, warning that if you are trying to cut a deal with them on the nuclear issue and you target them on this, all you're going to do is drive them away from the negotiations. And others said, no, we've got them. If we squeeze them, maybe we can bring them down. And it got very uh, it got caught up in these fights to the point that the, deci uh, the decision to target this bank uh, was, was uh, formally taken on the 20th of September, one day after Christopher Hill signed this September 19th agreement, and the plan to target the bank was leaked to the Wall Street Journal five days earlier, and Hill and the people around him, I think, were convinced this was an attempt to sabotage the talks. In any case, the North Koreans, as the, the critics had warned, behaved as one would expect. They walked away from the six-party talks. And it then turned out when Ernst & Young was hired to audit the bank's accounts that they could come up with no evidence of any money laundering or counterfeiting operations that any of the suspect account holders had been involved in, but the Macau authorities, because there was a run on the bank after this news came out, froze all the bank's assets. And the North Koreans said, we're not coming back to the six-party talks until we get our money back. And the Americans said, oh, this is just a law enforcement issue. We don't have, uh, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, but basically, to make a long story short, after refusing repeated North Korean offers to try and find some way forward, uh, to work with the U.S. to resolve the issue, ultimately the North staged a nuclear test. And three weeks after the test, Christopher Hill, again defying instructions from Condi Rice, held a bilateral meeting with the North Koreans in Beijing and promised them that he would work to find a bilateral mechanism to resolve this issue. And by holding the meeting, which the North had been asking for and had been rebuffed for a year, and by agreeing to this mechanism to resolve the issue, the North came back to the six-party talks, and they reached a deal in February. The problem then became that the, because, uh, the, the Treasury Department had not actually expected the Macau Bank, Monetary Authority, to do anything. They didn't know how to get the money back to the North Koreans. And the Chinese, who were furious that the U.S. had targeted a bank in Macau, where Beijing was very worried about, since Macau's now under Chinese sovereignty, about Macau's reputation. It's trying to, uh, you know, improve its kind of bad odor as a kind of sleazy backwater. They were furious at this. And so when the, uh, when the North Koreans said, just send the money to um, a bank in China and then they'll transfer it to us. The Chinese said, no dice. You got into this mess. Don't come asking us to bail you out. And it took about, about four months to uh, finally find a Russian bank in Khabarovsk that was willing to handle the money after the American ambassador in Moscow appealed to the Russians to help. And interestingly, once the North Koreans got the money, the next day they let the IAEA back in and within a month they'd shut down Yongbyon. So this is a very interesting kind of cloak and dagger tale, and not, not to deny that the North Koreans do dirty things, but in this case, they didn't have the goods, and they ended up shooting themselves in the foot, and yet again, it's a case of pressure and sanctions producing the opposite effect of what had been hoped for. Yes? Uh, part of the basis for the hardliners' position was the results of the treaty negotiating the Clinton administration, that uh, the hardliners' view was uh, that North Korea abided by what parts that were convenient for them, and when, when then when it was convenient for them, they violated it, and not any reason to expect any different uh, result from future agreements. Yeah. No, there was a lot of there was a lot of criticism, and and certainly there were many in the sort of neoconservative movement, neoconservative intellectuals who um, 
felt that dealing with North Korea was kind of poster child for everything that was wrong with the way the Clinton administration uh, dealt dealt with the world. The, the argument was precisely that the North Koreans had gotten more than they gave up. I, I mean, I, my own personal view is I think that's arguable because the key thing in the agreed framework that the U.S. got right off the bat was a halt to activities at the Yongbyon reactor. And if that had not happened by the time this crisis erupted at the end of 2002, instead of having enough weapons-grade plutonium for one or two bombs, the North could easily have had enough weapons-grade plutonium for 50 or 75 or 100 bombs. So, you know, that in the sense of keeping your eyes on the prize. But um, there's no question the North Koreans played fast and loose. From, the, loose. from their point of view, the North Koreans felt the Americans didn't honor their commitments. And in fact, uh, 17 days after the agreed framework was signed, the Republicans took control of Congress, the, the Gingrich Revolution of 1994. And after that, it became extremely difficult for the Clinton administration to get congressional authorization to spend the money to buy the fuel oil that had been promised to the North Koreans. I remember going to North Korea in 96, 97 and being taken to power plants and being told this is supposed to run on fuel oil that we've been promised under the agreed framework and it hasn't arrived. Um, and it's interesting that the, the earliest signs of the North Koreans beginning to explore uranium uh, uh, alternative uh, are generally placed at sort of 97, 98. Uh, and, and that is a point at which the famine in North Korea was at its peak. The North Korean system and I think leadership was feeling very vulnerable and their frustration that the things they thought they were going to get out of it, including diplomatic movement towards diplomatic recognition, this aid, these uh, so-called light water reactors that are considered more proliferation resistant, had all also slowed down. Uh, so it takes two to mess things up. I mean, the North Koreans are, 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 are not, you know, I think you can say most of the critical things you want to say about North Korea are true. But it was a, it was a you know, back and forth on, on, both, on both sides. And what's interesting, though, is at the very end of the Clinton administration, the North Koreans really were kind of making a gambit to try and resolve the issue by inviting Clinton, uh, trying to, you know, being open to a deal uh, on missiles. Um, one other point I would make is that, um, you know, while you can well understand the skepticism, the hardliners, and you can also understand the extreme discomfort that many people felt at the notion of having anything to do with a regime like that, given its character, um, the alternatives, as based on the experience of the first six years of the Clinton administration, don't seem very effective. As I've noted, Every time the U.S. sought to pressure or coerce or sanction North Korea, uh, the North Koreans pushed back harder. Uh, this is a system where the elite gets what it needs and doesn't care about the ordinary people. Uh, and so sanctions uh, that, that cut back on, that, that make ordinary people suffer aren't going to cut uh, much ice. And indeed, the North Koreans are masters at sort of cutting off their nose to spite their face. I remember in 94, North Korean official having a discussion about what was going on. He said, don't force us to commit suicide, which I thought was a very revealing insight into the way they think. And so all the, you know, the, 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 the sanctions, the proliferation security initiative, uh, the uh, attempts to target their illicit activities uh, didn't do the trick. And quite, uh, uh, quite the opposite, it, 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 uh, it made them push back even harder. And given that the ultimate recourse, which is a military operation, is, in my view, pretty much a non-starter. I mean, it, was always, it would always have been exceptionally dangerous. But uh, Yongbyon, clearly the stuff they produced there was not kept there. It's hidden under some mountain somewhere, and the U.S. doesn't have a clue where. So even if you were to take out Yongbyon, it wouldn't eliminate the North's nuclear capability. There's no question with the North having 10 to 15,000 artillery pieces within range of Seoul, which is only 45-minute drive from the demilitarized zone, that an hour after the U.S. took out Yongbyon, the North Koreans could turn Seoul, and phrase they have used in periodic threats, into a sea of fire. They've got medium-range missiles that could reach Japan and hit both population centers and U.S. bases. They have a long-range missile that might or might not be able to reach the continental U.S. Uh, and they had fissile material, which 
it's not clear how technically advanced their bomb was in 2006, but they've shown they can put fissile material together with explosives and blow things up. And with Iraq and Afghanistan, the notion of going that final step, the Saddam Hussein option, in my view, was a non-starter. And I know from interviews with people involved in these debates in Washington that when this came up at a certain point, Chris Hill would turn to people and say, well, what's your ultimate alternative if this other stuff doesn't work? The North Koreans are willing to hang tougher than we're prepared to be under the circumstances. I want to just uh, make one comment. Uh, here at the World Affairs Council, over the last couple of years, we've had an intentionally uh, targeted program to get more and more high school students involved in these types of activities, all of our events and lunches and, and book reviews and everything. And I would like to just take just a, a very short time and acknowledge all of the students that have showed up here tonight. Some of you may not have noticed. So if y'all would just stand up and we, we really appreciate you all being here. And, and personally, uh, Karen and I have, have actually established an endowment here at World Affairs Council. It's a challenge endowment that actually helps provide the, the money. We just use the interest on these accounts. It helps provide the money for, to bring and transport the students to many of these events. And I would encourage those who are interested to help continue to build that endowment. And al along with that, we have one question from a student here. And that is, uh, after the emergence, it's a little bit off the subject, but not completely. After the emergence of many of the third world countries on the global scene, how will we deal with the, their desire for nuclear energy programs and regulating the ones that pop up without warning? Okay, I, I should say, since it's the last official question, I'm not going anywhere, and I'm very happy to chat privately with any of you, uh, although I know many of you will need to just buy your book and race home to see the Pale and Biden debate. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, very good, um, it's a very good question about, I, I, I think the, the direct relationship to North Korea is, wh you know, wh what are the implications if other third world countries go nuclear? And I think um, the, the North Koreans were convinced watching the invasion of Iraq and the toppling of Saddam Hussein, the lesson they drew from that is he didn't have a nuclear bomb and he got whacked. We've got a nuclear capability, and we didn't get whacked. So the danger, and I've had North Koreans more or less say that in almost those blunt terms, that the lesson they drew from the invasion of Iraq is we better go nuclear to prevent Kim Jong-il suffering the same fate as Saddam Hussein. So the danger is, particularly countries that see themselves as our adversary, that uh, the lesson here is if you go nuclear, that in the end the U.S. will huff and puff, but they're not capable of acting and that you can get away with it. So I think it's a very, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I think the North Korean developments during the Bush administration have been such a disaster. The Bush administration came into office with enough weapons, uh, the North Koreans had an, maybe one or two bombs worth of weapons grade plutonium. As the president leaves office, they've got, as I said, enough for six or eight or ten, and they've staged a nuclear test. And for all of the tough language, the U.S. hasn't been able to stop that. So it's a very worrisome example that other countries might seek to emulate if they want to challenge the United States or if they feel that they're in an adversarial position, that it's a kind of a security blanket and that the U.S. won't go after you if you get it. So I think that really could potentially damage the whole idea of trying to control uh, nuclear proliferation around the world. So it's a very valid question. And we want to thank everybody for coming this evening. I hope everyone uh, make, that's not going to stay for the, uh, the, the Contributors Circle dinner, I uh, hope you make it home for the, uh, for the debate and uh, enjoy that. But we want to uh, thank Mike for being here, uh, introducing us to the subject of North Korea. I might recommend his book. And uh, we uh, enjoyed it, and thank you very much. Thanks so much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.